The Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kaylee Akina is brought to you by the Roland Family Foundation and the Ho Moana Foundation, helping one person at a time. And now here's Kaylee Akina. Welcome to the Grassroot Institute. It's Monday, August 22nd, and I'm Aaron Lee filling in for Dr. Kaylee Akina, president of the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. And we just want to say aloha and welcome to you on Maui's only show dedicated to individual liberty, the free market, and limited accountable government. Today on the program, the National Monument protecting the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands may be expanded soon, but what does that mean for the wildlife in that area? We'll talk today with expert Caleb McMahon. Also, an agreement was reached in a lawsuit over the union contracts at the Maui Hospital. What does this mean for patients? We'll give you the latest with Andrew Walden of the Hawaii Free Press. And, Governor Ige has declared another homelessness emergency, but are the declarations really helping the situation? Political science professor Colin Moore joins us later in the program. In addition, we'll talk with author and economist Ken Schoolin about the Maui bus system and other issues on Maui, and we'll listen to another adventure in the life of Jonathan Gullible. That's in a minute from the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii with Dr. Kaylee Akina when our program continues. The National Marine Monument in Hawaii, known as the Papahanao Mokuakea, is over a thousand miles long and encompasses the atolls and formations that make up the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. However, government officials are looking to expand this monument. We're here with Caleb McMahon to talk about this issue. Caleb is a former commercial fisherman and NOAA Fisheries Observer. Welcome, Caleb. Thanks for having me, Joe. So can you describe the monument itself? Well, the current boundaries of the monument are from the land of the northwestern Hawaiian Islands out to 50 nautical miles. And... It encompasses a a large area, and it was uh, designated a monument as uh, former President George W. Bush was was leaving office, and um, he did so under the authority of the Antiquities Act, and basically it prohibited, um, among other things, prohibited uh, commercial fishing in that area. So um, at at the time, it was the largest largest of uh, these marine national monuments. Okay, and now it, uh, government officials are looking to make it even larger. By how much? Well, the proposed expansion would be 1.3 million uh, square kilometers. So to give you an idea of what that is, that's like going from the tip of, of, of Baja, California, all the way up to Alaska and 400 miles out. So that's, it's a really large area. That would be off wow. limits to commercial fishermen. It's a lot of water. A lot of water. And uh, why do they want to expand it? Well, the pro- Senator Schatz's proposal, um, you know, offers a you know a number of of reasons and, and justifications for why this this ought to happen, and they're really uh, kind of uh, far ranging and include uh, you know purposes of. Uh, be, uh, resilience to climate change, to protecting uh, biodiversity and 
in vital habitat for a number of species. So that's that's kind of the uh, the gist of it. Also, because it is the uh, the Antiquities Act, which is has really a kind of an interesting history. Um, they also talk about the need to protect uh, cultural resources like these uh, World War II wrecks that uh, you know lie at the bottom of the ocean now. Okay, so protecting the environment, protecting some historical cultural resources, um, and what's the problem with that? My problem with it is I, I think a lot of people don't realize you know what what's out there from 50 miles to 200 miles and. That's that's a completely different ecosystem than the area that's currently protected. And so in the language of the proposal, you know, it, it talks about the, the unique ecosystems, the endemic species that exist in the in the current monument and, and it's all true. But when it when they talk about the need to protect uh, these same species in the proposed area, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the longline fishery is kind of being singled out here. We're we're the only guys that are that are out there uh, using this this area, and you know, and, and so the monument seems to be excluding just longline fishing. We're the primary stakeholders in the area. And uh, what are some of the arguments that advocates of the monument expansion um, want to? Are you? What are they using? They're using a number of of different arguments. Um, if, if you look at some of the uh, the media that um, that the pro expansion camp has has put out, you know it's it's these beautiful images of the, uh, this amazing wildlife in the uh, in the monument, but it's all it, these are these are coral reef ecosystems, and so and again in the language of the proposal, it talks about the unique black coral species, for example, that isn't found anywhere else on Earth. It's the oldest living organism. And, you know, it talks about the need to protect this. And uh, my argument would be, protect it from what? Oh, you mean um, that longline fishermen aren't uh, threatening that? Right. Not even close. I mean, longline uh, fishers target big-eyed tuna and other pelagic species, you know, at about 300 meters in the uh, deep in, the, in that pelagic water column. And um, the species that uh, proponents are, you know, talking about protecting include coral larvae, um, uh, you know, coral, uh, coral, uh, the coral reef at the bottom, Hawaiian monk seals, and many, if not all, of these species um, are under no threat by the the Hawaii longline fishery. And and you can look at uh, catch data and effort data from the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration and see that. You know, there have been no takes of incidental takes of Hawaiian monk seals in the, by the fishery, and uh, they certainly haven't uh, taken any coral reef because the gear doesn't reach the bottom. And you know, talking about protecting these uh, heritage sites like the World War II wrecks, I, I can assure you that the Hawaii Longline Fleet does not target nor has ever incidentally caught a battleship. Okay, but well what about the argument that some of the wildlife is on the land, the the actual islands in the in the northern northwestern Hawaiian islands, um, and uh, aren't uh, folks getting close to that? Well, let me just say, you know, I I appreciate I, I know uh, people in the in the scientific community who have had the privilege to you know go out and be you know on the northwestern Hawaiian islands themselves 
in, in those nearshore uh, ecosystems. And they talk about how amazing it is. It's a spiritual experience. The abundance of wildlife is like no other place on earth. And, and I, I think that's great. And I think, it's, I think it's a great thing that we have that monument. What my problem is, and to answer your question, the proposed area is not uh, close to land. I think a lot of people don't realize that 50 miles from uh, from uh, from land, you you don't see it. You're you're quite far away. And on a fishing boat, you're you know you're a you're a full you know a 24 hours uh, drive away. And then out to 200 miles. I mean that is that's that's the boonies. So in other words, um, the the islands, the the land is already protected. Um, we're uh, with the expansion. We're um, talking about water right yeah. the ocean more ocean water yeah and, and that's the and i think that's the a big argument for proponents you know look this monument is great let's make it even bigger and that's all that sounds good on paper you know and they say it'll just increase uh, all the good things that the current monument does and i well that's uh, you know arguable i think a main point that i think i wish people would realize is that we're talking about making our entire EEZ in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. What is uh, EEZ? The EEZ is the exclusive economic zone. It's the, it's the area around U.S. waters where American fishermen have exclusive access to fish. That, no, no foreign boats are allowed in that area. It's, it's our you know, privileged uh, fishing grounds. And that's really important because, um, you know, with... With our fishery out here in Hawaii, uh, we compete with foreign fleets who are um, who really comprise 98% of of the fishery. And our products, and everyone in Hawaii uh, can see this going to a, a local grocery store. The products from our fishery compete directly alongside our foreign competitors. And to limit access, to ban American fishermen from U.S. waters, I think has unintended consequences down the line. It may be a short-sighted game for conservationists. Hey, we, we, we limited the Hawaiian fishing effort by 10%. But what, what does that do when you limit and ultimately hogtie American fishermen? We limit our influence in the international picture. So when it comes to doing conservation measures on an international scale, which is which is really where it needs to happen because we are model fishers that the rest of the world looks to. We lose our ability to influence the international fleets and say, hey, you guys need to adopt these strict measures to reduce bycatch of protected species, for example. We lose that ability. Caleb, what about the um, argument that um, fishermen in that area are catching a lot of fish and uh, maybe we're starting to run out of um, big eye tuna, or we're we're overfishing or something, and this would protect that. Um, wh- what about that argument? Well, p- um, stock assessments for pelagic fish, like tuna, swordfish, the t- the fish that are targeted by this Hawaii longline fleet, it's a completely different science than you know coral reef uh, b- uh, management. And ecosystems. These are fish that do not spawn in the proposed area, nor do they live there. And so they're passing through. And that's the thing. If we, if we can't do this, and by this I mean expand the monument, we can't cut off our EEZ because 
maybe it would it would uh, benefit uh, fish stocks on a larger scale. It's it's far from proven. It's far from proven. It's that is not a consensus. And so I think we have to look. And also, um, and also, there already is a limit on on catching fish. Um, you know, for example, the the big eye tuna has already hit the limit, I believe, uh, in Hawaii. So there are certain checks and balances for that uh, as it is. So adding this um, other um, check of expanding the monument, um, it, it uh, is almost redundant. Absolutely. And let me just reiterate that. Hawaii fishermen, the U.S. fishermen that operate in the Pacific, we are the most highly regulated uh, fishery in the world. And measures that we have put in place like observer coverage, protected species bycatch, these are models that that we have been successful in getting the rest of the international fleet to adopt. We're, We're not all the way there, but like I said, we are a model fishery. And so when we when we tie the hands of our fleet, we are effectively limiting our influence in the international picture. And that is where the real conservation needs to needs to happen. We are not overfishing in Hawaii. Our our fleet, like you suggested, operates under a, a quota. There's been a little bit of you know controversy surrounding that, but uh suffice to say that we do operate under the quota and we are we are fishing sustainably okay so if uh, if the expansion isn't about uh, uh, environment um, then what is it really about you know I think that ultimately it's look um, environmental groups that want to have fish exist for looking at or knowing that they're there, they're a stakeholder in the, you know, in the public resource. That's, they have the right to sit at the table. And fishermen who want to exploit that resource, who want to fish that uh, for economic gain to feed people, they're a stakeholder as well. So everyone has a seat at the table when it comes to public resources. I think the, what this is about is that particular stakeholder group, the people who want to stop fishing or in, in that area, they're exploiting this Antiquities Act and, you know, petitioning executive order to sort of bypass the process that exists normally where everyone sits at the table, science informs management, and then from the manager's end, decisions are made. And so what this is about is exploiting uh, a, a mode of getting executive order to, you know, achieve their goals. And I, I don't think that's particularly fair in this case. I see. Okay, well, hopefully we can get more reasonable uh, discussion and uh, action on this. Um, thanks so much, Caleb, for joining us. Thank you, Joe. Caleb McMahon is a former commercial fisherman and a NOAA fisheries observer. I'm Robin Stuber. I'm a local girl born and raised in Hawaii, and I support the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. I joined the Grassroot Institute from its first inception. I feel very strongly about my grassroot membership because I have a son who will be going off to college soon, and I'm 
very concerned for the future that he'll be facing. Government seems to uh, impose a lot more regulation today. I don't know how that's going to affect the business climate when he's ready to graduate and look for a job. Um, even for him as an individual, what kind of new uh, regulations and taxes and cost of living will he have to face? Will he be able to move back to Hawaii and stay with his family? I'd like to for my son to, to have a, a bright future. And I think Grassroot Institute does a very good job with um, looking to continue to promote the kinds of values that I really believe in. For more information, visit www.grassrootinstitute.org. We're back, and you're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Akina. In every news piece, there is a story behind the story. Andrew Walden has been finding the truth behind the news. We're going to talk with him today. He's the publisher of Hawaii Free Press. Well, Andrew, as we've been monitoring the ongoing saga of the privatization of Maui's public hospitals, uh, it has taken all kinds of twists and turns, the original wisdom of the legislature and governor to allow the privatization to go forward uh, was a big win for the people of Maui, making possible the continued services of these hospitals, but uh, it's been fraught with danger. Uh, one of the biggest ones was the UPW suit to stop this, and another one was the move by the unions to get extraordinary severance packages paid to people who weren't losing their jobs. What is the latest now? Uh, now the ERS is suing the state and the UPW has settled. Well, let's talk about the UPW settling. That comes after a special session of the legislature in which basically the legislators threw the ball back into the court of the governor. Yes, and the legislators passed an illegal unfunded bill. Um, and so the UPW has kind of more or less ignored that bill. And uh, instead, they've settled for an agreement that um, prevents Kaiser from taking over the hospital until Sunday, November 6th, and um, sets up an employee leasing system um, from uh, the date Kaiser takes over up to the uh, end of the UPW contract, which is June 30th next year. Um, and then guarantees UPW members six months employment after the end of their contract. Well, in some ways, this solution saves the day. It gives the unions a little bit of what they wanted, and it allows the hospitals to move forward with the privatization. Yes, and the UPW president didn't show up for the news conference to announce the settlement, which might be taken as a sign that he wasn't really uh, thrilled about what he got. It was mostly a face-saving move on his part, a very expensive face-saving move. It looks like it was a concession that was necessary to keep the whole thing from actually falling apart. Well, there's still plenty of opportunity for this to fall apart. The ERS has sued the state because uh, Senate Bill 2077 uh, places uh, an, a mandate on the ERS to provide a lump sum settlement, um, which uh, the ERS uh, officials believe uh, will cost ERS its nonprofit status provided by the IRS. Now, behind this, of course, the, the, there is some goal, and that goal would be to get the court to provide a certain ruling. What would that goal be? Well, if the IRS can be um, obligated to give a quick answer to the question, um, then that would uh, set the basis for HGEA's settlement with uh, the state. 
And so we're able to go forward with the privatization and uh, tie up the loose ends conceivably. The loose ends need to be tied up, and it starts with the IRS answering the question quickly. Now, stepping back a little bit, uh, there are a lot of observers of this, particularly people who are being served by the public hospitals on other neighbor islands. Uh, What can they anticipate from the drama that's been unfolding? Well, there's two sides to it. Right now on on Maui, uh, every day the hospital is bleeding, um, and they're going to keep bleeding at least till November 6th. Uh, the advantage is that there starts to be some certainty as these settlements are put into place. Uh, the other thing that's coming is the privatization of the Hilo and Kona hospitals. And so these, uh, this agreement with UPW um, creates a pattern, and the pattern is that the union contract will be upho- upheld by uh, employee leasing uh, until the end of the contract. In the end, and we can hopefully see the light at the end of the tunnel, this is a victory for the people. It's a victory in terms of moving uh, government out of uh, having total control over areas like hospital labor management that it doesn't have competence in and getting the private sector involved. But but it's really fraught with a lot of cost. Uh, so do you think we'll come up with a workable pattern uh, that the neighbor islands other than Maui are able to use? The union hospitals have not worked for years. They've been bankrupt effectively for years. Uh, They've been a trust, a job trust for 5,000 UPW and HGEA members, and those will no longer be controlled voters for UPW and HGEA bosses to to instruct. And so there's a lot of gains here. And, of course, the the big gain is that uh, uh, by dismantling this union job trust, uh, people on the sister islands will uh, start to have uh, hospitals that are worthy of the name. Well, thanks for keeping us informed. We're really looking at not only the situation of hospital management by the state, we're looking at a new model for the future of the state of Hawaii in which government services become privatized. And so there's a lot hanging on this. Thank you, Andrew. Aloha. That was Andrew Walden, publisher of Hawaii Free Press, available 24-7 on hawaiifreepress.com. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Keli'i Akina. Governor Ige has declared yet another homelessness state of emergency in Hawaii. His reasoning, however, is less about the problem of homelessness than it is about the problem of executive overreach. Dr. Kelee Akina spoke with political science professor Dr. Colin Moore about the issue this week. Colin, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Well, always delightful to talk with you, and we, we don't even have to rehearse because when we sit down and have coffee, all we do is talk politics. That's right. It just comes <laughs> naturally. Well, Colin, we have seen the rise of home, homelessness here over the last several years in our state, and, and at one point... We had one of the largest or the second largest homeless tent city. The federal government came down and declared that that's what what was the case. Uh, What are some of the longer term causes of homelessness here in Hawaii? Well, I mean, it's certainly all about, for the most part, the cost of living. It's just a tremendously expensive place to live. And the wages aren't that high to compensate for the expense of living here. Um, I mean, there's really sort of three groups of homeless, I think. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are folks who simply 
can't afford to, to, to buy a, or rent a place. Uh, there are people who have drug and alcohol problems, and then there are people who have serious mental problems. And that, that last category is the most difficult to deal with. So it's important for us to understand the various causes, and you've identified three, and, and some people get even more specific and identify right, right. up to seven or eight different causes, and even include veterans and post-traumatic stress disorder and so forth. For the most part, we have methodology for dealing with the type of homelessness, except for a, a very small amount that uh, we really can't deal with very right. easily because of our laws and so forth. But how long have we had the problem of homelessness? In other words, what I'm asking is, is it a sudden emergency or is it something that has been systemic with the kind of economy that we have in Hawaii? Oh, I think it's been systemic. It's gotten worse over the last few years, um, but it's certainly nothing new. This getting worse, so is not so much a sudden ch change, it's just the condition is becoming so severe that it, we're starting to notice it more. It's becoming more apparent to anybody who walks down a city sidewalk or, or goes to a park. That's right, and it, I think it, I mean, it really reached this crisis point um, when the homeless population, for example, in Waikiki uh, grew fairly large, and it really was hurting the central economic engine of the state. Um, and so I think that's where it really got political attention. Um, it was a problem that existed for a long time, but all of a sudden it started to actually threaten the economy. Well, talking about short-term remedies, uh, one that is amusing but also really tragic when we think about it, was when the APEC, Association of uh, Asia-Pacific Economic Co Cooperation, came to Hawaii, and there were 13 heads of states here, heads of state here. Uh, there, were, there was the emerging homelessness problem at that time, and homeless encampments at the doorway of Waikiki. So the city arranged to have them moved to Thomas Square, which mm -hmm. is in central Honolulu, right across from the Honolulu Art Museum today, but the Academy of Arts. But the, the coordination was fairly poor, and the opening event for the heads of state was held at that art museum. So people arrived and actually saw the homelessness problem right. at the very beginning of the APEC event. Kind of amusing, but tragic, as I say. Uh, to what extent has this kind of short-term thinking been, in, uh, been our approach to dealing with homelessness as, a go as government here in Hawaii? Oh, I think, I think it, it really has, until recently, I mean, it really does describe how we have dealt with homelessness. And, and Hawaii isn't unique in this regard. I mean, lots of cities simply want to remove homeless people to places where they can't be seen. I mean, they, because it's embarrassing. Um, and it should be embarrassing that we've let our fellow citizens down like this. Um, but the question is, how, how can we best respond? And I've been a bit critical of Governor Ige's uh, disaster, I mean, rather emergency proclamation to deal with homelessness. Well, we'll go to there in just a moment, but uh, following up on what you've just said, is the perception that all government is doing, and it's a generalization, but how accurate is the perception that government simply seems to be moving the homeless around? I talk with a lot of people, that's their perception of what government does. I mean, it's not entirely inaccurate. Um, I mean, it's just, first, it's very expensive and difficult to build adequate shelters here. I mean, there are some people who have a variety of problems who are difficult to house. I mean, there's been real policy innovations in that area. Housing First is the most famous example. Right. Um, real efforts to house veterans. So we are making incremental improvements, but the population is large. It continues to grow. 
Um, and it's a very difficult problem for, for any government to deal with. So, I mean, we can't just blame, um, you know, right. ineffective state policies because it's a, tough, it's a tough nut to crack. Well, Hawaii's current governor, David Ige, inherited many conditions uh, in, in the state, one of them being a growing homelessness. And, and you've taken exception to his approach, basically the issuing of multiple emergency decrees. But why wouldn't someone see homelessness as an emergency? Uh, or is that political speak? Well, I think that, I mean, it, it, is, it, is, a, it's a, it is a crisis. Um, but the reason the governor, governor is given these powers of emergency proclamation um, usually is to deal with a natural disaster. I mean, something so the state can operate very quickly, so they're not dealing with union collective bargaining issues, uh, the usual sort of procurement rules, um, because something has to happen right now. So this declaration of an emergency state allows the government the executive branch to take certain actions that it otherwise would be restricted from doing. You mentioned, for example, getting around the, the rules we have for union labor and so forth. That's right. I mean, and so by lifting those rules, um, I mean, the theory is, and this is how Governor Ige would justify it, that it allows the state to be nimble, to act quickly, to deal with this problem um, without waiting for months for bids or the other sorts of things you have to do um, when the state is acquiring services. The problem with that is, though, that this, is, this can be a very slippery slope. I mean, um, the, the, these emergency proclamation powers give the governor some extraordinary powers. I mean, we should be careful in how we use them, particularly when you see them um, continued for month after month after month, cont continually reauthorized. So what we see here is a challenge to the balance of powers. In other, in other words, we're bypassing the legislative branch over here, and, and we're also making ourselves somewhat immune to the judicial branch by giving ourselves a free pass uh, in, in terms of certain actions and giving great power for the executive to do what it chooses to do. That's right. And it's not, I mean, it's not as if this isn't uh, a laudable goal. It is. Um, but we have to be careful about what precedence that sets. I mean, this can become a standard tool for governors in the future, you know, simply when they're dealing with a tough policy problem to declare an emergency proclamation and then act as they'd like to. If we were to translate this dialogue we're having to a federal, national level, th this is where people in the battles between conservatives and uh, progressives would be talking about executive overreach. That's right, that's right. And so this has happened at the presidential level. And, you, and you, what the interesting thing is, and this is what concerns me about uh, Governor Ige's um, emergency proclamation, is that you know it, it kind of has this ratchet effect. And so once one president does, you know, expands his um, executive powers, the next president builds on that. I mean, this is one thing Republicans and Democrats uh, can, can agree on um, when they're in the, in the office of the presidency is that they want more executive power. From a pragmatic point of view, how effective is emergency action in solving something which you've already said is systemic with the economy? You know, I don't. I, I really don't think it is that effective. I mean, it's such a complex problem um, and it requires a long-term approach. I mean, so this might get some folks in houses sooner than they otherwise would be able to. Um, but that isn't what's really going to address the long-term problem. I mean, I think the root of this and why you have to declare an emergency proclamation is that our state government is so ineffective that the only way to get anything done in a timely manner is to issue one of these extraordinary declarations. So it's not so much a solution, but it's the only way of navigating during 
a dysfunctional time in our government. That's right. Um, and what we really well, that's should, a great defense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the what we really should be talking about is why why are you know the normal ways a state can go about doing business? Why have we reached the point where? It's simply in, they're simply incapable of doing anything. Well, you know, as as uh, part of the Grassroot Institute, I would hope that policymakers would sit down and talk about land use policy, the supply and demand of uh, land, affordable housing, long term issues that ultimately impact whether there's short term housing. But these emergency measures tend to work against that. Would you say? I think so. I mean, this is—it's it, something that can be politically appealing. I mean, this looks like the governor is, is acting and acting aggressively. That—that's popular. Um, well, that's like a president going to war. Right. Right. Or <laughs> the or, war on drugs, the war on poverty, or appointing various policy czars and things like that. Um, but I don't think it solves the long-term problem and it introduces these other things, which are troubling. Which is the expansion of executive power, which kind of—I mean—is really, I think, inappropriate. Well, it's an election year, so let's go to perceptions by the public uh, of, of what they want their leaders to be doing. Does this play well in the eyes of the public? It does play well. I mean, the public actually likes uh, expanding executive power. They don't like the messiness of the legislature. I mean, that's the funny thing about the uh, American political system is that people find American politics so frustrating because it's so slow. But of course, it's that's the way it was designed, to slow down the process, to make us think more deliberatively about these policy solutions. Again, jumping back to the, the national elections, uh, doesn't at least one of the candidates for president, Mr. Trump, uh, pronounce similar measures, pronounce short-term emergency solutions to problems? He absolutely does, and this is why I find Mr. Trump a, a fairly dangerous figure. I mean, from a policy wonk point of view. From a policy wonk point of view, from, from someone who uh, wants to honor the Constitution. I mean, frankly, the Constitution is set up to make sure that someone like Mr. Trump can't uh, enact the sorts of policies he wants to enact. Now, equal time. Can, can you see the same thing in any of the pronouncements of his opponent, uh, Ms. Clinton? I mean, I think that the Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, Secretary Clinton has a uh, has a similar, um, you know, has some similar liabilities. I mean, she, she operates in a different way, which is more about secrets and avoiding transparency. Well, but, there we go. The equal time just saved you from right. getting hit by tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> which goes back to perceptions in Hawaii. So some things play well politically, whether it's national or locally, but they're not necessarily good policy in the long run. That's right. Well, what can we do as the electorate, or unfortunately in this state as a very tiny percentage of people who actually vote, what, what can we do as citizenry to help encourage our policymakers to consider the long-range solutions rather than just short-term politics? Well, I mean, it, it is a matter of becoming more informed about the complexity of these issues. I mean, electing people who are more deliberative, who seem more careful, um, than simply trying to win their next election. Well, Colin, thank you for your insights. Always great to have you on the My show. My pleasure. My guest today is Colin Moore, professor of polit political science at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelii Akina. Are we overfishing our waters? Longline fisheries have reached their limit for catching big-eye tuna here in Hawaii. Andy Slavin, one of our researchers here at the Grassroot Institute, brings us the story. 
We're here with grassroots researcher Andy Slavin. Welcome. Hello, how are you? Good. Now, Hawaii just recently ran out of its catch limit for big eye fish. Is that right? Yeah, big eye tuna, correct. So what does that mean um, that uh, we can't catch any more of these fish? Yeah, so um, the fisheries will allow allow a um, catch limit. And basically once the... uh, it's typically in pounds, and once that once that uh, pound limit is reached for that type of species of fish, then the fishing must halt until the next annual catch limit. A pound limit meaning if one person catches too many fish, then that person isn't allowed to fish anymore, or is does this apply to the whole state? Uh, it's applied to the whole state. In fact, um, it's applied through the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission, so it actually applies to most of the Pacific Ocean. Okay, so Hawaii has a catch limit, and that means that if in total all of our fishermen and fisherwomen uh, catch too many fish, then we have they blow the whistle and we have to all get out of the water and uh, stop fishing for these big eye tuna. Is that right? Uh, yes, except um, there's some discrepancy and leeway for uh, the Hawaii longline fisheries because they kind of have a deal with the commission where they can take some of the catch limits from the um, closely located territories. Okay, so normally um, this might apply to the states, but now when we talk about um, other parts of the Pacific Ocean, we're kind of uh, swapping uh, trading cards in a way. Um, We're trading you this and you're trading us that and they're trading us their share of the fish. Is that right? Uh, Yes, pretty much. Um, However, there is some uh, altercation that comes up. It's kind of a backdoor underway mining of uh, overfishing, if I I may. Okay, so those who are concerned about um, trying to keep in line with the state um, catch limits um, might be concerned about this um, sort of backdoor way of getting some more fish. Yeah, and it hurts a lot of the local fishermen because uh, they have smaller boats and can't travel as far as the Hawaii longline fisheries can. So it's kind of a backdoor way for a larger group to be able to get away from this catch limit. Okay, but um, even even without that, we still have a problem with overfishing our waters, is that right? Yeah, a lot of the times the catch limit won't be, uh, the limit will be, uh, by the time it's over, it'll be over the limit most of the time. So yeah, there's quite a bit of overfishing still. What does fishing look like in Hawaii when it comes to this, um, like for example, in January? Uh, Basically, you'll get a lot of fishermen going out and catching as many fish as possible. And not only does that lead to short-term overfishing, but it can also be uh, fairly dangerous. Okay, so in January, fishermen are allowed to begin that year's um, catch limit. But uh, you're saying that they rush out there and they overfish uh, as soon as possible. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty much a every man for himself, and uh, it creates a bit of chaos and uh, can definitely lead to some overfishing. Now, why is that happening? Why is there so much, uh, so many people running to the water to fish in January? Well, I think that it's mostly a systematic failure of the catch limits. 
Um, if you look across the world and even across parts of the U.S., they have something called a catch share, which is uh, what many environmental groups see as a more sustainable way of fishing. Oh, wait a sec. Even before we get to that, I want to get to why do so many fishermen go out in January to try to catch so, so much fish? What's the incentive to just try to catch as, ma- as many fish as you can in January? Uh, it's a competition thing. They want to get as many fish as they can before the limit on the, sh- on the fish is set. So the more fish you can get in that time period, no matter how much you overfish, it profits you more. And if you don't fish? Then you miss out and eventually the catch limit will be reached. Uh, for example, it's already been reached on Big Eye Tuna and it's only July. I see. And uh, what would a better way to do it be? Uh, Well, if you look across the U.S. and even the world, you'll see something called a catch share, which a lot of environmental groups see as a more sustainable way of fishing. Okay, and how does this catch share work? Uh, It will allocate um, essentially property rights to fishermen and fisheries who will then be able to uh, buy, sell, and share their catch limit or their catch shares. So it's applicable to uh, cap and trade for carbon emissions. However, we're trying to reduce overfishing and not pollution. So I'm a fisherman, and under this system, I would go out to the water, and for one year, I could catch a certain allotment of fish um, for the year. And if I run out of that allotment, then I can't fish, but that doesn't prevent anyone else from fishing that year. Is that right? Yeah, it's a more stable system that will that would allow um, fishermen to safely go out and they're guaranteed that amount of fish. So they're not, not everyone is rushing out at once or um, overfishing immediately before the catch limit is hit. It's very sustainable. I talked to a fisherman the other day who said uh, if we had this kind of system in Hawaii, then he would wait to fish in until uh, December or November when the price of tuna goes through the roof because because uh, the supplies run out at that time. So it, you're saying it might even out the uh, distribution uh, in a way. Yeah, you could see uh, more stable prices. And for fishermen, it allows, allows the uh, their business interests and aligns that with long-term stability because they are tied to that ecosystem and they need it to survive, essentially. So you're seeing a more stable version, which would possibly stabilize prices as well. Okay, but getting away from prices in the economy, what about the environment? I mean, would this have uh, a negative impact on the ocean? No, in fact, it, uh, in most fisheries that have established catch shares are actually seeing a more sustainable version of their fishery. Um, like I said, you won't have everyone rushing out and immediately overfishing. Um, everyone's allotted a certain amount, so if they want to leave the fishery, they can sell their 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 share, or um, they can buy into it. Uh, depends how it's allocated, but it's actually a lot more sustainable. And assuming that uh, the environmental factor is a big problem currently, where we're overfishing our waters in January and February and March, um, having a more even distribution might uh, replenish the supply of fish because now you have uh, just more fish in the water um, all the time. Yeah, you definitely have an incentive to replenish the ecosystem because it benefits you. So it ties the ecosystem and business profits together and 
uh, into a sustainable method. Okay, and uh, what, what do environmental groups that you've talked to uh, think about this? Um, environmental groups are very for it. Um, the only issue that they see is the allocation of this system, which is set up in many different ways, and I think it would have to be unique to Hawaii. For example, in Alaska, they allocated um, a large share to the native population, and then they share. It, it's mostly a historical context, but um, it, there's many other factors that can be taken into consideration. So. Uh, assuming that it's allocated properly, then most environmental groups see it as the best way of fishing. I see, but then the question is always who gets to have the fish. But uh, anyways, that's a question for another day. Um, thanks so much for the research into this matter. And uh, um, maybe, who knows, if we uh, implement this, maybe we'll see more fish. Yeah, that's the goal. Thanks for having me. Andy Slavin is a researcher at the Grassroot Institute. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelii Akina. Well, one of the good things about Maui is that we have a good bus system here. But could it be better? Maui County Council members are planning to make improvements to the bus system, but that may mean higher taxes for Maui residents. Joe Kent brings us the story. The Maui public bus system is considering increasing fares in the coming years as costs for repairs increase. Councilmember Gladys Baisa said, I think we have to look at options for funding because we cannot raise fees to the point where people cannot board because we defeat the purpose, which is to help people that don't have cars, can't have cars, can't drive and do all of that. So it's a very interesting thing. The Transportation Department says they would like to raise $88 million more to pay for improvements to the Maui bus system. This will be paid by raising the general excise tax for Maui County, just like was done for the Honolulu Rail Project. But the deadline for raising the general excise tax has already passed, noted Councilmember Ricky Hokama. But that deadline has come and gone, Joe. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to happen. And yet... This is based on that happening, which, again, the consultant did not listen to this committee's earlier comments at a previous meeting. So I'm very disappointed in that perspective. Since the deadline's passed, that means the county will have to subsidize money for improvements to the Maui bus system from its remaining funds. Don Medeiros, director of transportation, said that the bus system needs repair. A lot of us have the old mentality, at least I do because I'm old, is that once you get something, you better take care of it because you don't know when you're going to have the money to replace such a thing. And as an example of that, we, I mean, we have very good maintenance now. As an example of that, the first transit bus is the one that looks like trolleys that we run to Kihei and to the west side and all. Yep. You know, the, 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 old, the first ones are approaching six and 700,000 miles. That's unheard of because we haven't hit the history. We haven't hit the, the deadline uh, set up by feds as far as the life of, this, of the bus in years. We're hitting it on mileage. Who would think that on an, on an island like this, we're going to hit that? If you say that to, to a transit agency in, in Chicago or another big one, and you give them this kind of mileage, their, their jaws drop. But they're safe and they're operating. And, and we'll keep them operating 
you know, as long as we can. But Councilmember Don Couch was skeptical about the higher costs, as it may take away from other important government programs. You know, this is a great service. We're doing a good job. There's no question about it. It's just as at what cost. Because under operating revenue, you also have county highway fund. Yeah, that's revenue to your department, but that takes away from public works for building roads. I mean, for eight, eight or next year, or this fiscal year, $7.7 million, we'll pave a lot of roads, but that money gets diverted. So we're looking at much higher costs than what we're looking at. But, uh, but, but Councilmember, our car holds a lot more people. Yeah. <laughs> And it's heavier and tears off the road quicker. Not really. <laughs> Don Couch also mentioned that the county is already spending a lot of money on the bus system. You're looking at $16 million that is costing the county for this, which is about a, a you know $97 per person in here in the county to operate a bus system. I understand it's a good system, and it's, I understand it's something we need, but we we have to see how we can curtail some of these costs. It's just, I mean, we're bleeding uh, lots of money. In the meantime, the Department of Transportation will attempt to get funds at the federal government, and Maui citizens will need to weigh the costs and benefits of the current bus program. For the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, I'm Joe Kent. Here on Maui, many families want to get solar panels, but they can't. Uh, That's because Maui County has reached the solar program's capacity limit. But wouldn't it be great if the government didn't restrict the amount of solar panels and families could install them? Joe Kent brings the story. Last June, Maui County hit the limit for rooftop solar systems that can send power to its grid. Andy Slavin asked Hajime Alabanza, executive assistant of Hawaii Solar Energy Association, about why there needs to be a limit for solar power in the first place. Why is there a megawatt limit in the first place? Like, why is there only allowed to be 35 megawatts total sent back in? Right. So I guess the PUC wants to, you know, leave some allotted amount of space for utility scale projects in the future that are argued to be more cheaper on a kilowatt hour basis. And then also, I suppose they want they want to encourage more people to apply to the the customer self-supply option um, because that has less technical impacts on the grid and it just provides people with more consumer choice. So I'd say that those are probably the three main reasons. Um, and there are probably others out there as well. So I've been reading into it a bit, and is it more difficult for Hawaii to have these programs because of its isolation, and we can't just quickly send more power off of the grid as easily as, say, California? Yeah, I know that you know that's sort of a contentious issue that we're not able to export electricity to another right. state. You know, I don't, I don't think that's a big. I think we can get by with coming up with you know, policies in place to encourage energy storage. For example, I think energy storage will solve a lot of our problems mm-hmm. for um, being able to integrate distributed energy resources into the into everyday grid operations. So I'd say that, you know, it is um, a challenge, but I'd say that energy storage should be um, a big solution. Hajime said that solar panels need to be limited to make room for future renewable power sources. However, 
If the solar limit isn't increased, then islanders who want solar panels will just have to wait. If the cap isn't increased, we feel that it's going to be difficult as of now, and we're just going to have to wait for new policies to come in place. So how how does Hawaii Solar Energy Association, or you on a personal level, how do you move forward with such legislation? Are you guys pushing for any current legislation? Right. So in this past session, we lobbied for... I think it was 17 bills, somewhere around there, everything to do with reinstating net metering. Uh, There was a bill for that. And then also we supported both energy storage incentives programs. So um, we do think that energy storage is really important. So we're going to continue to um, support any bills that um, come in place in the future. Hajime Alabanza is the executive director of Hawaii Solar Energy Association. Grassroots analyst Andy Slavin interviewed him about the limit on solar power on Maui. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Iakina. You've been listening to Grassroot Institute of Hawaii with Dr. Kelly Iakina. Join us every Monday at 7 a.m. If you'd like to hear today's show or leave a comment, go to grassrootinstitute.org or call 591-9193. Grassroot Institute is Hawaii's leading independent think tank, working for a better economy, a better government, and a better society.